The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. There's a legacy that exists between African-Americans and beer and spirits. Even if it may seem to be something trendy that's popped up along with the rise of craft beers and micro distilleries. For example, in Africa, there's a tradition of making fermented drinks from the fruit of the ebony tree, which just so happens to be related to the persimmon, an American fruit. Once in this country, enslaved people recognized the similarities between the fruits and began to make persimmon beer which can be made by combining the fruit with water, sweet potato peelings, cornbread or cornmeal, and letting it sit in a keg for a few days. And let's not forget about master brewers like Peter Hemmings. That name may be familiar, and that's because he's the brother of Sally Hemmings, who was enslaved by Thomas Jefferson at Monticello and bore six of his children. Peter was in charge of brewing and malting operations, and according to Jefferson, quote, our malter and brewer is uncommonly intelligent and incapable of giving instruction, end quote. Or what about Ursula Granger and her husband George, who were cider makers at Monticello as well? Or even Elmer Lucille Allen, the first Black woman chemist at Brown Foreman, one of the largest spirits and wine companies in the United States. Welcome to Setting the Table, a podcast about Black cuisine and food ways. I'm Deb Freeman. I'm a writer that focuses on African-American food ways and the impact those food ways have on how we cook and eat today. On this episode, we're going to explore the stories of Black brewers and distillers. America has had a long and complicated history with alcoholic beverages, having famously been outlawed entirely for 14 years in the early 1900s during Prohibition. But entwined in that history are the stories of Black brewers and distillers. Let's start at the beginning. Dutch and English colonists brought the technique of brewing malted barley in particular adding hops and creating ales, creating beers. And so when colonists established communities in the U.S., brewing was always an important part of the work that had to happen there. And it was not really for reasons of taste. It wasn't because beer was fun to drink or delicious as we might consider it today, but you know, it was really a nutritional necessity. Water is boiled in order to make beer, so it was safer to drink than water, but far beyond that, it was really an element of the diet. I'm Teresa McCullough. I'm the curator of the American Brewing History Initiative at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. My work there is to research and document the histories of beer and brewing in the U.S. Early settlers would drink beer as a source of hydration, since many of them lacked access to clean drinking water, as well as the knowledge to purify water themselves. 
Brewing during this time period was a domestic chore, often done by women. In the 1700s, brewing began to grow as a business, with rich landowners building their own private brew houses. Many of the founding fathers, including George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, were also a part of this growing business in America. Of course, for these two former presidents, they weren't the ones doing the actual brewing. You know, in my work, when I speak about brewing, especially in early years, I often get questions about Thomas Jefferson or George Washington as brewers, whereas they were enslavers and people who were enslaved by them grew barley on Mount Vernon, brewed beer at Monticello. Historians have found records of enslaved people in Virginia growing hops and selling them to Martha Jefferson, selling them to the College of William & Mary. This persimmon wheat ale that has come to be associated with Monticello history was developed by Peter Hemmings, who was the expert brewmaster at Monticello. He was enslaved by Thomas Jefferson. It can be easy to think that enslaved African-Americans were only tasked with menial labor, but many were taught to become skilled artisans. In addition to brewing, Washington also operated the largest commercial whiskey distillery in the country during that time period. To learn more about the distillery and the enslaved African-Americans who worked there, we head to Mount Vernon, the home of our first U.S. president. My name is Steve Bayshore, and I'm Director of Historic Trades at George Washington's Mount Vernon, and I oversee Washington's restored gristmill and distillery, the farm site, and the blacksmith shop where we tell the stories and interpret and demonstrate life on Mount Vernon in the 18th century. Washington's distillery was the brainchild of his newly hired farm manager, James Anderson, a Scotsman who approached the recently retired Washington with the idea of going into the whiskey business. Mr. Anderson had been involved in whiskey making in Scotland, and when he gets the farm manager job, he proposes a distillery right next to Washington's large water-powered mill. They distilled the first year in 1797 in the cooperage, which was next to the mill where they made flour barrels. And that was kind of a test case to see if it would sell. And on the basis of good market sales in Alexandria, Virginia, about 10 miles away, Washington agreed to build a larger building that was substantial. It had five stills in it. And in 1798, that distillery produced 4,500 gallons of whiskey. In 1799 was the big year, the last year of Washington's life. They produced almost 11,000 gallons of rye whiskey and a few hundred gallons of peach, apple, and persimmon brandy. That is an impressive amount of output from Washington's distillery, especially because distilling in this time period was a very hands-on process. Through his work at Mount Vernon, Steve has become a sort of steward to the colonial method of making Washington's whiskey. In any distillery operation, you have to cook and ferment grains. That's the start of the process. And then after fermentation, it goes through a a still, a copper pot in those days. In that time period and going back hundreds of years, you had to cook the grain that was ground in the mill, whatever recipe of whiskey you were making. In this case, it was rye whiskey, so it's mostly rye grain. The rye and the corn were mixed in a large 120-gallon wooden barrel And all the grain had to be hand-poured. All the water had to be hand-carried from the boiler, about 110 gallons for each fermentation. And then they took turns rowing with a big rake called a mash rake to stir and mix all those grains. And then you have to add malted barley at some point, which has that enzyme that will convert starch to sugar, because that's the whole point of fermentation. You're getting sugar off your grain. 
And then they pitch the yeast in that and it will ferment three to five days. And then once it's ready, it had to be bucketed again from those big wooden fermenters to the copper pots. And then running the wood-fired stills is certainly a skill because you have to learn how to feed the fire properly so that the alcohol comes off properly. And then there's certain things they have to do when the alcohol flows to make sure you don't want methanol in your final whiskey. So there's a cut made to remove that, separate it, and destroy it. And then you get into the good flavor quality whiskey. So that process went on day after day in 1798-99. So as those men who probably were new to distilling, those young enslaved men, they learned that process or that many gallons would have not been made. The success of Washington's whiskey business would not have been possible without the skilled labor of his enslaved distillers. I asked Steve to tell us about them. Well, we're fortunate to have a fairly good set of records at Mount Vernon, and obviously not every detail about these men that worked there and women that worked at Mount Vernon, but there's certain families and men we know their jobs based on the the list that were developed of the enslaved, skilled slaves especially. And so we know that there were six young enslaved men at the distillery listed as distillers. You had James was the oldest, Timothy was the youngest at 14. You had Nat, Daniel, and one other gentleman. And they did a lion's share of the labor in that operation because making whiskey in that era was a lot of hand labor and hard labor to bucket and haul and run stills and cut firewood, etc. And then you have a cooperage there to make barrels. And so there's Jacob, Moses, and, and a couple of other coopers that work there. In many cases, the skills learned by enslaved African-Americans helped them make a life for themselves after being freed or escaping their enslavers. Once again, here's Teresa McCullough from the Smithsonian recounting how she discovered the story of Patsy Young, a runaway slave that supported herself with the skills she developed in bondage. So I was doing some research in a wonderful free database called Freedom on the Move. It's run by a collaborative team of scholars. And on this database, they have digitized and posted more than 30,000 what are known as runaway ads. And I came across an ad that, to be honest, struck me at first for its length. It was published in the Raleigh Register in August of 1824. And it was a whole column of text. And normally these ads are 10 lines long. But this long column of text, as I read it, I realized there was just this incredible story about a young woman who lived in North Carolina in the early 1800s. And among other skills, she brewed beer. This was not the first time she had escaped. It was clear from the ad that she had escaped a first time, 15 years in the past. So this ad was published in 1824. It referenced an initial ad that I was also able to find that had been published in 1809. And in those intervening 15 years, when she had lived in freedom as a fugitive in Halifax, which was one of the major centers of that region of North Carolina at the time, she supported herself in part by brewing beer. She also baked cakes and she sewed fine clothing for men and women. One of the many amazing components of her story is that she likely learned how to brew and learned how to bake and learned how to sew from other women who were enslaved with her because once she escaped and then began to support herself, she had these skills and they were skills that had originated for the purpose of serving someone else, of, of serving others. And she really used them to exist in a county where there were so 
so few women of color compared to the numbers of the enslaved population, the free population. She must have been so resourceful and skilled at finding a way to earn a living and to exist in that place for a decade and a half. When I first learned about the story of Patsy Young, I was shocked. Not because she ran away, but because there are so few documents that talk specifically about enslaved person skills in such depth. So what happened to Patsy Young? She got married to a free man of color named Akeel Johnston. And then less than a year after her wedding was when her original enslaver, Nathaniel Hunt, found her, captured her, and brought Patsy Young and her daughter, Eliza, back to his property and enslaved them both there for a little more than 14 months. And then she escaped a second time in 1824. And then beyond that, I could find no record that she was recaptured beyond that date. I'd like to think that Patsy was able to truly escape and live out the rest of her life as a free woman with her family. Now let's talk about Nathan Nearest Green, perhaps the most well-known example of an African-American associated with spirits. Nearest Green was born into slavery in 1820 and worked for a distiller named Dan Call. Green taught the art of distilling to a young Jack Daniels, who also worked for Call. Nearest was emancipated in 1865 after the Civil War ended. And when Jack Daniels purchased the distillery from Call a year later, he made Nearest the first master distiller of the new Jack Daniels distillery. That made Nearest the first African-American master distiller on record in this country. Nearest Green's legacy lives on through his descendants, some of whom still work at the Jack Daniels distillery and some of his other descendants are carrying on the family tradition by breaking new ground in the distilling industry. I am Victoria Edie Butler. I am the master blender for Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, and I am in Shelbyville, Tennessee. Victoria is a great-great-granddaughter of Nearest Green and master blender of Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, an independent distillery founded by author Fawn Weaver in honor of Nearest Green's legacy. I am responsible for all the blends at Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey. Every expression of whiskey that we put out into the market, I oversee that, I blend that, and every expression moving forward, if it requires a blend of whiskeys, blending lots of barrels together, I am responsible for that. Victoria has the distinction of being the first African-American woman master blender, as well as the first person to be named master blender two years in a row at the American Icons of Whiskey Awards. It's hard to put into words what it feels like. I'm definitely humbled and extremely honored. I was thrilled to have won last year Master Blender of the Year, and then it ramped right back up having won again this year and knowing that I am the first to ever win back-to-back years, it is extremely exciting. The interesting thing is, Victoria didn't start out as a blender. In fact, before 2019, she had never even blended or distilled any whiskey at all. But when given the opportunity, she took the chance. 
not very many people have the opportunity to carry on a legacy that lay dormant for more than 160 plus years. So given the opportunity to do that, quite naturally, I said yes. When I first joined the team, it was in an administrative role, but that lasted less than 60 days before I blended the first batch of Uncle Nears 1884. My first time in the lab was March 2019. I had never blended any whiskey, never even considered it, actually. I enjoyed a good glass of whiskey, enjoyed making cocktails, entertaining family and friends in my home, but I had never done anything even close to that. Oh, my goodness. Uh, It seems like a lifetime ago now, but it's only been three years, you know. I was nervous. I went into the lab along with our CEO, Fawn Weaver, her husband, Keith, and three of our team members. And I can't remember now if it was 31 or 36 samples for me to decide which of those would be blended together to make our 1884. But yeah, it was nerve-wracking. It was exciting. Just a lot of emotions going on all at the same time. But oddly enough, as I was doing it, the nerves subsided and came out with a fantastic product. And it has just been an absolutely beautiful ride for the last three years now. And I cannot imagine now that I would be doing anything else. Let me tell you about Uncle Nearest Whiskey. It's the most awarded American whiskey, and their three whiskeys have won over 150 awards and accolades throughout the world. And it's also considered one of the top five whiskeys in the world. And this is a whiskey that debuted only five years ago. I'm still amazed that Victoria was able to just jump in and create such an amazing blend with no experience at all. It's clear that distilling is deeply embedded in her DNA. Without a doubt. I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe the wonderful traits of making whiskey, making the best whiskey around, what Nearest Green did all those years ago that I now possess myself. I am a woman of faith. I believe, you know, in the the higher power. I think that Nearest would be proud of what we are doing. And I really believe that whiskey is in my blood. I was curious to learn more about Nearest Green's distilling technique, also known as the Lincoln County Method, which I had heard had roots in West African traditions. The Lincoln County process, which we use and all Tennessee whiskey uses, is the process of filtering whiskey through sugar maple charcoal. That is a process that Nearest Green helped perfect in 1856. In 2013, the governor of Tennessee signed into law that any whiskey designed to be Tennessee whiskey must adhere to all the governing characteristics for bourbon, plus be made in Tennessee, and it has to go through the Lincoln County process. So for us, that makes Nearest Green the undisputed godfather of Tennessee whiskey. So the Lincoln County process 
from all that we have been able to find is, is basically a process that, that our people in West Africa used to purify their water. And I just believe that Nearest Green in his infinite wisdom thought, you know, if it worked to purify water in West Africa, that it would do the same for whiskey in Tennessee. It did, and it's still relevant today. It's obvious that Victoria is very proud of her roots and heritage, and honoring that legacy is incredibly important to her. I just hope and believe that our ancestors are proud, that we truly are our ancestors' dream, and that what we have been able to accomplish in just a short period of time is just a blessing. The fact that we became the most awarded whiskey or bourbon for three years in a row, 2019, 2020, and 2021, that we're building out this beautiful distillery in Shelbyville, Tennessee. I just believe that we truly are our ancestors' wildest dream and that those who are gone on before us, that they are looking down with happiness and joy in their spirit and, and in their hearts, that although it lay dormant, Nearest's legacy lay dormant for more than 160 plus years, delay did not mean denied. We are working feverishly every day to make up lost ground and to ensure that when people are talking about those icons, so to speak, in the spirits industry, that Nearest Green will also be included in those conversations. Now we're going to go from craft distilling to craft brewing. Our last stop on this episode is Harlem Hops in New York City. Harlem Hops is a craft beer bar. We are Harlem's first 100% African-American-owned craft beer bar. I like to say we are the best beer bar in New York City. We like to focus on New York City brews and breweries, but we also put a lot of attention on Black-owned breweries and spirits and wines, being that we're in Harlem, you know what I mean? And it's rich in this Black history, so we want to highlight that Black history the best way that we can and then promote the best beer that New York has to offer as well. My name is Kim Harris. I am the co-founder of Harlem Hops. Basically, I run the operations, the day-to-day operations with our general manager. Joined by her co-founders, Stacy Lee and Kevin Bradford, the three HBCU grads and beer lovers realized there wasn't a place to enjoy craft beer in Harlem. I was getting into beer and I was like, yo, this is this is some good stuff. But whenever I find something that I liked, I couldn't find it in Harlem. So then I was going out to Brooklyn and Queens to get it all the time. So at one point I was just in my head, like I always wanted to open up a restaurant or a bar. I went to school for restaurant management. And because I was like, you know, I'm drinking this beer, I can't find it in Harlem. Let me look into doing a beer bar in Harlem. And I feel like the same thing was happening with Kevin. He loved great beer. He was traveling all over the world collecting beer. Like he's been collecting beer for a long time, almost 30 years, if not over 30 years. Kim and her team are committed to supporting their community, both locally and at large. 
I'm very happy to say that we have three of our own beers that we did collaborations on with different Black brewers and Black-owned breweries over the past couple of months. So we have something called La Renaissance de Moon, which is the renaissance of the world, right? And it's a collaboration that we did with Four City Brewing and Harlem Blue Beer. And we did this collaboration last year. It was kind of like the phoenix rising from the ashes of COVID. Let's see a brighter new day. The beer is a, a Belgian triple. It's amazing. It's 8.5% alcohol. It's got a lot of fruity flavored notes to it. It's a really great Belgian triple. Four City brewed it. They did an amazing job. We had artwork on it from a local Harlem artist. His name is Roosevelt Taylor. And he's from Harlem. He does a lot of murals in Harlem, things like that. He did the labels for all of our can collaborations last year. And we have two other of our beers on tap, Harlem Hope's Homecoming, which is something that we did with Brooklyn Brewery. And from Harlem to Hackensack is a beer that we did with Hackensack Brewing based in Hackensack, New Jersey. All the collaborations that we do, proceeds go to our scholarship fund, Harlem Hope's The scholarship fund goes to our Harlem students that want to attend HBCUs. And their support of Black businesses isn't just limited to craft brewers. Even our foods, you know, and our bites that we offer. We like to find different and -and up-and-coming brands that are offering bites for the bar that we serve. Aguma Pie, which is a Ugandan brother based in Virginia. And we have some vegan sausage maroon sausage. It's a brother based in New York and Brooklyn. So, you know, everything is curated with the intention to help rotate business within the Black community as much as possible. Kim and her team have put a lot of thought into how and why they're here. Listening to her talk about her passion for beer and the community, you can't help but feel that, like with Victoria, there's something deeply rooted underneath. One of the things that was important for us is remembering and reclaiming. So, of course, for personal reasons, getting into this industry, I just want to drink some good beer. I just want to have access to it in my own neighborhood, right? But then as I was working towards that, I was like, what is my real affinity to beer? Like, why, as a Black woman, would I like beer? (laughs) And is this something that would work in my community? There was a time when my grandfather, he made beer, and I had no idea he was doing it before I was born. And then, like, it's not until I'm years into this journey with the beer that my mom is like, oh, you know, your uh, grandfather used to make beer. (laughs) I'm like, oh, that would have been helpful to know. Like, (laughs) that makes more sense. But we just never know. You know, I I have plenty of friends who have grandparents that were bootleggers or distillers, and and that was, like, their little side hustle. So... It's definitely, I feel like it's something that's in our roots. We might not be aware of it, but it's probably in our roots somewhere. And now it's coming out. So when I wanted to do some research into why I had this affinity towards it, that's when I met Tanya Hopkins, who is also known as the Food Griot. And she's a food historian, and she gave me the history of beer as it pertained to its origins in Africa. And all throughout all parts of Africa, you could find beer through thousands of years. And it was definitely made by women. And then she gave us the history of beer from when we were enslaved and we came to the United States. And some of the original brews, what we call American lagers, 
were made by Black people who were enslaved. So it's the same thing, the same story that repeats in every different industry within this country and how we created or invented something. You know, you we have Richard Spikes who invented the taps. So it's definitely something that we had ownership of, but of course, somebody else took it and ran with it. And now it's time for us as Black brewers and people in the industry to just reclaim it and do it the way it was intended to be done and making sure that our voices are also being heard in this industry. Beer and spirits have been a core part of American culture since the very beginning. And as with anything this entrenched in American culture, they intersect with Black foodways and history as well. So the next time I sit down with a glass of Uncle Nearest, I'll be thinking about how Nearest Green introduced West African techniques to Tennessee distilling, how Patsy Young brewed beer as a way to support her freedom, and how James, Timothy, Nat, and Daniel worked those hot Virginia summers to make those 11,000 gallons of whiskey for George Washington. And maybe you should be thinking about that too. This has been Setting the Table. I'd like to thank my guests, Teresa McCullough, Steve Beshore, Victoria E. Butler, and Kim Harris. You can learn more about Teresa's work at TeresaMcCullough.com. Check out Steve's work at George Washington's Distillery at MountVernon.org. Learn more about Victoria's work at Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey at UncleNearest.com. And visit Kim and her Harlem Hops team at HarlemHops.com. Saying the Table is part of Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Setting the Table team, producer Marvin Ya, audio editor Evan Lindsay, researcher Havan Obasilase, and intern Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast Celine Glazier, sound engineer Max Katelchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant Amalisa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. Cover art created by Whetstone art director Alexandra Bowman. Our theme music is Who's Back in Town by Sammy Miller and the Congregation. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. Until next time, I'm Deb Freeman.